Started Buddhist teaching and Buddhist practice by going for refuge, and um, you know I, I like to think about going for refuge in a lot of different ways, and I like to think about the the, the diff- I like to think about different facets and aspects of the of the three jewels. Um, and one of the one of the ways that I like to think about them is that they're like superheroes that are interceding on our behalf, and so I imagine kind of like like the wonder twins or the, you know, captain planet, if anybody's seen the captain planet cartoons from decades past. And I think of them as like, I'm Buddha, I'm Dharma, I'm Sangha. And when our powers combine, we form the triple gem. And then we, and then, then us, you know, trapped in samsara, we can say, Oh yeah, the triple gem is here to save us from the nefarious samsara. Um, Of course, you know, Dharma really only works when we apply it, you know. Um, although there are wonderful stories of the of bodhisattvas that are very much like superheroes, and they have superhero names, you know, like indestructible warrior and flaming head of wisdom and things like that. Um, so I, you know, it's not hard to think of. And if you see the like the the Tibetan tankas of them, they're like they have these like wild outfits and they're brandishing all of these crazy implements and so uh it's it's kind of i like to think of them as like the avengers um saving us from an invasion of demons um but of course um that's not you you know there's a lot of that in like vajrayana but in um in like in the mahayana and the Theravada, especially like Buddhism is something that works because we put it into practice and, and Buddha is not a savior figure. He's not someone who, who can like uh, intercede and rescue us from whatever, you know, unfortunate thing is happening. Um, Buddha is a, you know, is a scientist and a teacher and a psychologist and a philosopher who who like laid out this system and then invites us to go through the system with him, this, this path, you know, the, the noble eightfold path and, um, or the Lam Rim that was developed in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, we're in a Tibetan Buddhist center. And so uh, the, the Lam Rim is that is the system presented in, especially by the Geluk school. But um, you know, Buddha Buddha said, like, here's like the the sequence of things that you have to do. Here's the kinds of things you have to put into practice and and then discover these results for yourself. And and in fact, Buddha specifically said in his lifetime, uh, in in the early sutras, uh, Buddha said, don't take what I'm saying uh, on, on faith. Uh, he says it's it's a it's wrong to to as a Buddhist it would be wrong for us to um, just believe what Buddha says because Buddha is Buddha and he's amazing and you know he's like deified in this kind of way and we just worship Buddha and, and uh, whatever he says is uh, de facto true. Buddha said not to do that. He said to test things out in your own experience. And really only um, put things into practice if they are meaningful for you and, and in the way that they're meaningful for you. And he said, just as you wouldn't buy gold from a, from a merchant without testing the gold to ensure that it's pure. And, uh, and in the sutra, he talks about all of the different ways that you would test gold. You would scratch it to see if it's just a surface. You would melt it down to see if there's any impurities um, he said, similarly, you should test the Dharma to see if it's real and if it's, if it's authentic and it's pure. So that's actually something that gives me more faith in Buddha than, and Buddhism than just sort of, you know, um, asking the bodhisattvas to intercede on my behalf. I, I, it increases my faith in Buddhism that built into it is this, this, this caution against taking things too much on faith without testing them. 
And also built into that is that Buddhism isn't something that happen. You know, it's not something that you you benefit from by just by by merely listening to it or merely believing that it's true. It's something that you benefit from because you put it into practice. And so when I think of like going for refuge to to the three jewels, I think of I think of this kind of verifiability of Buddhism as uh, something that gives me confidence in it. Um, Dharma is something that is true because it's practical. It's true because it's useful. It's not necessarily true because it's the only way to look at the world that's meaningful. Buddhism doesn't really present itself that way, but it presents itself as true in that if you think if you think of it about it deeply if you learn it and think about it deeply and put the experiments into practice in your own consciousness that you'll see results you'll see you'll you will receive benefits and that's the that's the refuge of buddhism right we don't take refuge in the buddha and that like he can rescue us we take refuge in the buddha in that he's he you know the teachings inspire confidence because of their replicate, their verifiability and their replicate replicatability. I'm not quite sure what that word would be. Replicability, replicability. That sounds better. Um, and so that's like when we have the Buddha, we go for refuge to the Buddha, but we also go to refuge to the Dharma. And the Dharma is this methodology that we can test. And we go for refuge to the Sangha because the Sangha is the generations of people who have been doing this for thousands of years and who can report back their own results. And so we have generation after generation of commentaries and reports and new philosophical systems that come out of, that come out of the core Buddhist teachings. And those are all like people putting their own kind of spin on it. They're like, I put this into practice. Here's what I discovered. I see, here's what Buddha said. Here's what I experienced. And here's what I have to say about it. And then we have this massive you know, body of literature and, and, and living masters, living, you know, experienced teachers who we can kind of compare our own notes with. And we can, and if like we're having hangups, right? Like it, which happens, you know, it's possible to have unpleasant experiences in meditation, you know? I mean, at the beginning, meditation is just kind of hard work to like learn how to train your mind that way. But as you get along and you gain some skill with meditation, you run into like parts of your mind that, you don't want to deal with the parts of your mind that are maybe really out of control because they've been on, they haven't been examined in such a long time. Um, you know, it's very, it's, it's possible to like re-trigger traumatic memories in, in meditation and things like that. Like meditation can be dangerous. Uh, it's not a panacea. Um, but we have the Sangha, we have the Dharma and we have the Sangha and that we can say, okay, you know, what are the, what am I encountering? What is this? I'm not the first person in the history of the world to discover this particular obstacle of meditation or Buddhist practice. And, you know, we can read how other people have dealt with it, dealt with these issues. And we can also talk to our own teachers and our spiritual friends, you know, our community here in Diamond Light, where we have the opportunity to have discussion groups and ask questions and and, you know, build a sort of filial trust and a filial bond that helps us navigate the challenges of samsara and the challenges of Buddhist practice. So those are things that I think of as like, those are refuges. Um, those are ways of taking refuge in the three, three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So we're in a course on karma. This is the third class. Um, there's a, um, there's a, an outline, a handout with an outline and readings that are on the website and, uh, we'll put that link in the chat. Um, let's not forget by the end of the, the class. And so, um, we, we're following kind of a curriculum here and we are, we're in the third class, but we're, uh, if you're following along with the outline, we're still in class two. And, you know, we, the thing, kinds of things we've already talked about so far is we're talking about um, what are different possible worldviews, what are different, you know, a worldview is a way that we kind of implicitly see the world as working. And it's, 
it's easy, at least I find it easy to just sort of haphazardly have a sort of superstitious mishmash of worldviews. And, um, you know, we, we, you know, things are so complex and Buddhism says this karma is, is so com- vastly complex. The web of causality, when I say karma in, in this context, I'm referring to the web of causality is so complex that it's impossible to comprehend the entire thing. It's, it's inco- impossible even to just take one thread of karma and follow it, you know, all the way along. Um, and, you know, we, we experience that in our own life without anybody having to explain karma to us because, you know, our own scientific worldview, you know, when we look out into outer space, it's like, it's, we can't even begin to wrap our mind around how vast the cosmos is. And we can't even begin to wrap our mind around how the billions of cells and microorganisms that live in just my body are working together. And why am I an individual when I'm clearly this, this elaborate colony of, of individuals that are somehow working together, like just trying to figure out my own body is to, you know, is beyond the comprehension just because of the vast scope of the complexity. And so this is, you know, one of the things that we, we struggle with, with causation and, and in particular with karma, because karma is saying now expand that causation even further. We already experience causation in basic ways. Like I'm thirsty. And when I drink water, it alleviates my thirst. Like that's a cause and effect that I understand implicitly without even having to think about it. And Buddhism is asking us, the Buddhist view of karma is asking us to expand much, much greater scope where even our, our thoughts, our intentions, uh, our subtle feelings, things that we do that we're not even aware of, like the bugs that we step on when we walk down the street or, or the bugs that we smash with our car when we're driving from our home to the grocery store. We're not even consciously aware of those things, but they're all impacting our karma. And one of the things we talked about last week was, um, so one of the things we were talking about last week was the, the 10 misdeeds the 10 main bad karmas, the 10 main ways to create bad karma, um, uh, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct being the three of body, lying, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle speech being the four uh, uh, negative actions of speech. And the, the three misdeeds of the mind are um, craving ill will and wrong worldview or, or um, you know, willful ignorance. I think of that last one as like willful ignorance when we choose to look the other way when we're being called to look at something more deeply. Um, and so, you know, those misdeeds, like the first one, they're, they're all forms of not harming others. And the first one, of course, is the most obvious, not harming other creatures' bodies. And so, you know, one of the things we will look at is how, um, what types of actions cause what lead to what types of results karmically. Um, and of course, you know, sickness and our own death is the consequence, the karmic result of the negative action of killing, harming other creatures' bodies is the cause that leads to our own body experiencing illness, decay, and death. Um, but we don't really um, we don't really think of it that way. We don't really ex- we don't experience it that way. Is the thing. It, it just seems that old age and death is just an inevitable part of being alive. Um, and we don't connect our own bodily deterioration with accidentally hitting insects with our car, for example. Um, let alone things we don't remember because karma takes place across a scope of time that encompasses multiple lifetimes. And so this is one of the crucial, I think this is one of the crucial things that makes karma difficult to accept as a worldview is that we can't perceive directly the the relationship between a a particular cause and a particular result. And because karma, the, the web of causation is so vast, so complex, 
the the length of time that we're talking about over which karmic seeds have been accumulated. And, and so the pool of seeds that are ripening in our present life is so vast that we can't connect a specific cause to a specific result. And that makes karma difficult to, difficult to accept uh, in my, I, I think. Um, because the, they, you know, in the, the, the Buddhist texts, the, the literature says that karma that you create in this life can ripen in this life, but it can also ripen in the next life, meaning this body dies, this identity dissipates, like my self-conception dies when the body dies. The, the flow of karma takes a new birth, a new life, a new type of life. Maybe it's a human being, maybe an animal or an insect. But um, Buddhism ha- has all kind, you know, has all kinds of rebirths for every conceivable type of consciousness, um, up to you know pleasure realms and gods and demigods that live in paradises and whose lifespans are hundreds of billions of years. Um, so when I'm thinking, you know, karma, your karma can ripen at any point in any of these future lives. Um, and there's no way to predict or connect a specific cause to a specific result. So we have to, this is why we have to work with worldview. This is why we have to work with karma as, um, understanding it as a way of, of looking at, uh, at looking at the whole cosmos. You know, Buddhism is asking us to accept that consciousness is like an innate part of the universe that consciousness is not something that is created or destroyed with life but rather that life as we see it a physical life is a an extension of or a byproduct of consciousness and as consciousness kind of perpetuates through this cause and effect cycle so that, I mean, I, I find that to be a tall order. I find that to be a lot to wrap my mind around. And, um, you know, to, to some degree, I, I do have to take on faith that my actions in this life will have consequences in a future life. And that the things that are happening to me in this life are the consequences of causes that my consciousness, maybe not even under my control, my, you know, me mojo, under my control, but under a previous life's control, um, planted that karma that led to this life now. Um, but one of the things that I like about Buddhism is that it, it positions these as thought experiments, not as something that we have to simply accept um, blindly. Um, so let's take as a, as a, let, let's take as a given for this thought experiment that consciousness is continuous. And that consciousness does not have a beginning or an end. And that what we experience as our lifetime is one small sliver of a vast process uh, of, of life, of birth, life, death, and rebirth and ongoing. And that what we're experiencing in our life is the consequence of causes that were put into, into place by a previous person who tended this stream of consciousness and that I'm tending this, uh, this flow of karma, this mind stream, and I'm setting it up so that the future lives will also have good, uh, you know, good, beneficial, pleasant lives. Um, So I'm kind of tending this stream rather than that I'm worried about myself. And and that's a help. I think that's a helpful way of thinking about this uh, thought experiment because the the crucial teaching of karma is that what we're experiencing is the result of how we behaved towards others in the past. And so that that's an, another thing we covered in a previous class was the was old karma, which is karma that was planted in the past, ripening now as my experience. Versus new karma, how I'm reacting to that experience is what's planting the seeds that's going to be the future old karma for 
for another as another result. Um, so how I react is what is going to be planting the karma for the future. And, and so what I experience is how I treat others. Um, and this is, you know, this is a common, we've heard this before in many different contexts. We call it the golden rule. Treat others as you would have them treat you and do not treat others as you would not have them treat you or what goes around comes around. Um, like we, we kind of, we have, we have a cultural trope for this, even without the Buddhist idea of karma being introduced. So, you know, again, I think of Buddhism as pragmatic, useful, accessible. And so here's examples of how core teachings of Buddhism have been present in our life since probably since we were young children, when we were first taught the golden rule. And Buddhism is saying it, not only is this a nice way to live, not only is this a virtuous way to live, but it also is like a fundamental aspect of how causation works in the universe. And you're choosing how your future life is going to be based on how you uh, act now. So um, there's, so there's four type, there's four different aspects of how karma ripens. Um, there's um, uh, there's uh, detailed of this in in um, in the Lumrim Chenmo, which is Jason Kappa's kind of masterwork. If you are familiar, Tsongkhapa was the founder of the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, he lived in the 14th, 14th, 15th century. Um, and so um, he says that, that um, karma ripens in four main ways. And one is the type of rebirth that you have, like at a basic level. And that's, you know, we're, all of us here are reborn as humans. But uh, as I mentioned, you could be reborn as an animal, you can be reborn as an insect. Um, and then there are the lower realms, like the, the hungry ghosts, which are, which are like haunted beings that are dominated by craving and can never be satisfied. Um, Buddhism says that you can be born in hell realms, uh, either hot or cold realms or, or extremely violent realms that are dominated by war and violence. Um, and then there are realms that are more comfortable and more blissful than the human realm. Um, like the, the God, the God realm, which is basically like a permanent paradise vacation where everything that you could possibly want, um, emerges immediately into your life. And then there's the, the demigods or the asuras who are, have just about everything that the gods do, but they're jealous of the gods that have a little bit more than them. So the asuras are always trying to steal from the, the asuras have, have everything, the demigods have everything they could want, but they're still trying to steal stuff from the gods because the gods have like a slightly shinier new car or whatever. Um, and again, I think, you know, the, the, the realms are described as births, but they, but we can, I think it's not very difficult for us to, to imagine them or, or see that there are people in our own world that are very much like this. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a famous psychology book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate. And it's his first person account of working as a physician um, with um, addicts, uh, drug addicts mostly in um, Vancouver, um, Canada. And, um, you know, he, he, the book is mostly about addiction and trauma, but um, in his, his title, he's very evocative and, and he talks about the Buddhist realm of hungry ghosts, the birth of hungry ghosts. And he says, this is what you see on the streets with, with um, addicted people. Um, and we can also, you know, we can also see the, the demigod in the God realm, I think at least close to it in our world with the ultra wealthy who um, never have to handle money or never have to drive a car be, or even step outside if they don't want to, because a helicopter will pick them up on the roof of the one building and take them to the other building. And they just live in a realm that's, you know, they live on earth, but 
or you know that guy who went to outer space today because he's got enough money that he can build his own rocket ship um so you know we can imagine that you know these these realms that are so different from our own even even that we can see them you know let alone the sort of cosmic realm of of beings that live for billions and billions of years in a pure blissful state um and if, and it's this is an aside but it's worth you know mentioning that we we think you know, I, I've had this conversation with a number of different people and a number of different students. And, and I used to teach religions at a high school, at a Buddhist high school. And, and one of my students was like, I don't really want to be a Buddha. I want to go to the God realm. He's like, that sounds really great. Like you can have lots of girlfriends and you can have everything you want. You can always have the, the newest sneakers and stuff. Cause you know, I don't know if you know this, but teenagers care a lot about sneakers. Um, And he's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm trying to encourage them to like say, yeah, but you could be free of suffering forever if you work towards nirvana. And he's like, no, I'm going to take my chances in the God realm. And I was like, okay, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a 15 year old response to teachings on karma and rebirth. Um, But the, the gods um, burn up all of their good karma. They use up all of the goodness in their life, in their mind stream, because they don't do anything for others. Everything is provided to them. Everything is super easy. They don't even see other beings in suffering. So they don't have any opportunities to help other people, but also they're so self-satisfied that they don't think about helping others. Everything is taken care of. And so what's happening in the God realms is that they are using up their storage of good karma, of virtuous karma, but they're not creating any new virtuous karma. And so when, when their lifespan eventually comes to an end, um, the, at the moment of rebirth, there's no good seeds to ripen to take them to a higher birth. And so it's said that gods uh, fall all the way to the lowest hell, only because there's no other, there's no place else for them to go because there's no positive seeds to ripen. They've just like it's like they got a big trust fund and they just burned through it. And then once it's gone, there's no, there's no, there's nothing more coming, you know, it's all gone. Um, so anyway, that's the, the first type, that's the first type of, that's the first aspect of karma that ripens. What type of world you see yourself in? What type of body you see yourself having? I experience myself as having a human body as opposed to a dog or a cat body or an insect body. And so I'm in the human realm. The, the second aspect is um, the circumstances of your life. Because as I mentioned, there are many different types of human births. So you can have the karma to be reborn as a human, which is considered a higher rebirth. Um, but you can, have good or, you can have good or bad karma within your life as a human being. So... Um, the, the, the relative level of your health is an example of the, um, the, you know, the, it's called, excuse me, it's called finishing karma or consistent, consistent karma. Um, and so the, uh, according to Tsongkhapa, I, I'll tell you what he says are the consequences. We're going to talk a little bit about karmic correlations now. Um, the consequences of one type of, of, uh, of if your consistent karma or your finishing karma is um, bad due to breaking the 10 misdeeds. So this is like if not, you know, not honoring the 10 misdeeds leads to certain types of consequences. So he says, for example, violating the precept of no killing or not harming another creature's body he says that the consequences of that is that your life is short or you get sick easily. Um, for the, the, the vow or the precept of, um, of not stealing, he says, if you violate this, you don't have enough to live on. And the things that you do have are common property and you have to share them whether you want to or not. For the, um, the precept of sexual misconduct, uh, he says that people around you are are inconsistent. You have a lot of com- and you have a lot of competition for your partner. Um, so that's interesting. People are if 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 
if you don't respect other people's sexual boundaries, then you are, you find that you're surrounded by people who are unreliable and inconsistent. And also that you have to worry about the fidelity of your own partner. Um, for the, the precept of um, lying, um, the result is that no one believes what you say, even if you're speaking the truth. And, people, and other people are always deceiving you. So you find that you have a lot of liars in your life and that people don't find you reliable. This is, you know, this is kind of mix and match. It's not necessarily going to show up as one or the other. These are sort of, a, a, a each one has a couple of options. Um, for the precept of harsh speech, the result is that people around you are fighting with, un with one another and have undesirable character. So you're around unpleasant people and a lot of fighting and, and malice amongst people. Um, for the precept of, um, uh, this is divisive speech. No, that's divisive speech. Harsh speech is that you hear unpleasant things. And when others talk, when others are talking to you, it seems like they're trying to fight with you. And for the, um, so you have bad sounds in your environment. Um, and then for the precept of idle speech, you, um, no one respects what you say. No one thinks that what you say has value and, and you're afflicted with a lack of self-confidence. Um, and then the last three are the, the, um, the non-virtuous acts of mind, the way that we think. Um, and the first is uh, covetousness or, or greed or desire um, is that your personality is dominated by desire and you're never satisfied with what you have. For the next is ill will, which is um, aversion or hatred or wanting to push things away from you. That, that precept is that you find yourself without help. You never find the help that you need and uh, also you are, are always hurting others and being hurt by others, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And um, the last one is um, wrong views or willful ignorance, as I like to call it. And that says you become a person who keeps harmful views, um, um, perspectives or ideologies that are dangerous and hurtful. Um, or you become a deceitful person. Now, this list is helpful because it help, it starts, we start to get a sense of how the actions that we're, that we're committing, the things that we're doing with our, with our uh, action, speech, and thoughts, how, what those type of results, what the types of results are going to be. So we get a sense of how karma is a refractory process. It's not that we kill an insect and then that results in us being murdered or something like that. It's more that there's, you know, harming life leads to our lives being short and, un and uh, physically unpleasant and, and on down the list. So, you know, one of the ways that this can go is that we start to do uh, car what, what can be called karmic management. And um, we start to, oh, wait, I wanted to go through the rest of that list, but karmic management is important. So hopefully I'll come back to that. Um, that's the second type. So that's the second type of karma. The first is the type of birth that we have. The second is the circumstances of our life. Um, the third is called um, the action of uh, the karma of action. And this is essentially habit. And I think this is of the four, this is the easiest to understand that once when we do an action repeatedly, it becomes a habit and we keep doing that action. We become, another way of, of looking at it is, is that we become habituated to doing things a certain way. So, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but like the first time you do something harmful, it's like, it's difficult and painful, but then it starts to become easy and maybe even fun. Um, you know, like smoking cigarettes or shoplifting, you know, God forbid any of us have ever done anything like that, but maybe it's something that you have a, mem a distant memory of doing something like this, but you know, the, these are, they, they're, they're 
there are things that are difficult to start, but once we get into the habit of them, they're easy to continue. And so this is a, a type of karma. This is a, a type of the way that we are planting seeds leads to us planting more of a similar type of seed in the future. It, it's kind of self-replicating. Um, and this is why cultivating good habits is really important because um, the, you know, the precepts, you know, taking the, um, taking precepts to not break the 10 immediate misdeeds, the 10 misdeeds, um, taking a precept is like saying, I'm going to watch out for this. I'm going to keep track of my ethics, of my ethical behavior, and I'm going to make a concerted effort to not do these things. And, and over time it becomes, uh, it, it can become a habit and we get used to just not lying. We get used to not, you know, smushing spiders when we see them in our house. And at first, when we see a spider in our house and it seems gross or scary, then we just react. But gradually we come to learn like, oh no, that being's life is as valid as my life. And it's my responsibility to protect that creature's life. And then even if that impulse of like, ew, icky, you know, pest comes up, we, we have the habit of saying, okay, how do I deal with this in a nonviolent way, in a non-harming way? So that's one of the benefits. That's one of the benefits of precepts is that we create good habits. We create habits of planting good karma, which is leading to an upward spiral as opposed to a downward spiral. Um, okay, and then the, the fourth type, uh, the fourth way that karma ripens is called environmental. Um, and in this text from Tsongkhapa, he also calls it um, a dominant consequence. And the reason it's called a dominant consequence, the environmental is obvious. It's, it's, it's the, the type of world that we live in. So the, the previous one is the type of interactions that we have. When I, when I read that list of, of um, finishing karma, your life is short and people deceive you and things like that. Um, that's the type of interactions that you have. This is the type of world that you live in, uh, the, literally the environment. And so um, I'm, I'll give you the examples that Tsongkhapa uses. Um, and so he says the, the, the consequence of killing expresses itself as, as um, in the outer world as um, food, drink, and medicine have little power. The food has little nutritional value. The medicines are weak. Um, if you get sick and you try to take medicine, the medicine isn't helpful. Um, he says that the, the, the food and drink and medicine that you have are low quality. You, you can't get high quality medicine, uh, or food, um, or the, or the food has, is hard to digest or the food itself causes illness. Uh, I think of this as things like, you know, junk food and, and, um, you know, highly processed food that doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. It has a lot of calories, but it doesn't have a lot of nutrition. Um, and he, he says another consequence is that, that um, you don't see the beings in your world uh, living long lives. So one is that our own body is, is weak or illness prone. Another is that we look out in the world and we see other people who are weak or are, have weak bodies or are sick or illness prone. Um, when he, he says that, that the consequence of stealing, the environmental consequence of stealing is that... Um, Food is hard to acquire. Um, possessions are, uh, the things that you need are hard to acquire. Um, also that there are droughts and floods, that, that the weather comes at the wrong time and as a result, the crops don't grow. Um, a lot of his, a lot of his um, examples are agriculture examples because of course he lived in the 14th, 15th century. and um, you know, of course, people in those days depend very much on, on the uh, crops. And it's easy for us to lose sight of that when our food comes from the grocery store or uh, people, we, we can just call somebody on the phone and they'll like bring hot food to our house. Um, in Tsongkhapa's, back in Tsongkhapa's day, they had to grow food <laughs> if they wanted to eat. Um, so he talks a lot about how the karmic consequences are how our food 
doesn't grow very well. Um, he says the result of sexual misconduct is that there are open latrines and that the, uh, the sewage and waste disposal isn't working properly. So you encounter a lot of uh, feces and urine in your environment. Um, things are dirty and hard to clean. Um, and, everything, and everything stinks. That's what Tsongkhapa says. Um, he says as a consequence of lying, um, when you try to cooperate with other people, it takes a lot of work. And in the end, the, the work doesn't produce results. The, pro the, the projects fail. Um, or you encounter people who are trying to cheat one another. Um, or people are afraid and fearful of being cheated. Um, divisive talk. He says the ground is uneven and it's difficult to travel. Um, there are lots of, um, there are lots of, uh, oh, am I in the right one? Yeah. Uh, yeah, difficult is trap. Dif travel is difficult. And when you're traveling, there's a lot of things to be afraid of. Um, traveling is fearful. Um, because of uh, harsh speech, he says there are things like um, plants with thorns on them or broken glass on the ground. Um, there's, there are no streams or springs or lakes. The, the earth is parched. And um, again, he says fear. There are many things to fear. Um, because of idle talk, meaningless speech, um, uh, food grows at the wrong time. Um, and I find this one interesting. Food seems ripe, but it's not ripe. So things seem, as a result of idle speech, um, things seem like they're good, but, and you, but when you harvest them and try to use them, they're not good. And he also says there are, um, there are no parks, no pools, and no places to take leisure. So we kind of are, by wasting time with speech, we are creating a situation where we don't have leisure in the future. The world is, is set up that it, there's, there's not a lot of places to relax. Um, the consequence of, of covetousness, of greed, of desire, is that everything, every good thing that you find starts to deteriorate rapidly once you acquire it. Um, things always, things get worse and not better. Um, and he, he just says things kind of continuously degrade and deteriorate. Um, because of ill will or hatred or aversion, um, he says the world is chaotic. Oh, this one's interesting. He says where dis diseases spread rampantly. Uh-oh. I feel... I feel implicated um, where there's evil everywhere and conflict, um, fear from armies of other nations, um, dangerous animals and snakes and insects. Uh, also um, you live in a place where there's lots, where there's a high crime rate, thieves, uh, especially uh, theft. And then last but not least, because you have held wrong views, um, you live in a place where any source of happiness is disappearing from the earth. Um, where a place where people get things backwards, where people think that things that are bad are actually good. And people, and people think that things that are um, impure are actually pure. Um, he says, a world where there is no place to go, no one to help, and nothing to protect you. So I know that's kind of, that's all kind of dreary, um, but this is an important aspect of studying karma. This is called karmic correlations, where we are um, wanting to understand, at least, this again, we're th this is a thought experiment. We're like trying to expand the scope of our understanding about the relationship between cause and effect, and how do we 
begin to navigate this environment, even though we can't with our own senses see the direct link between a cause and effect because there's this gap in time between them. Um, and sometimes this vast gap in time. And so we start to work with that by looking at, okay, what are, what are the misdeeds and what are the consequences of those misdeeds? And then we can start, we get, here's where we start to get some uh, tools that we can use, right? Um, and so if I don't want those results in the future, I need to not create the karma for those in the present. That's why we, I mean, you know, this presentation kind of focuses more on the negative where it's like, well, we're trying to avoid disaster. So we want to avoid creating the causes for disaster now. Um, but then conversely, we want to have pleasant things in the future. So we plant the seeds for having pleasant things in the future now. Um, now there's an approach to this that, uh, that I've heard called karmic management and karmic management is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm okay with this as a thought experiment, but I think it's a slippery slope to take it too seriously. Karmic management is saying, whatever you want, you can have, you can have whatever you want. You want to be rich. You want to have a new car. You want to have a great relationship. You can have it all. You just have to work the karmic system. So if you want to be rich, you have to be generous. If you want to have a good partner, you have to take care of lonely people. You have to go out and find lonely, lonely people and hang out with lonely people because helping, other, helping lonely people be less lonely is how you create the karma to have a good relationship in the future. Um, and, you know, that's an interesting thought experiment. Like, can we work the karmic system to get what we want? Um, but I think that that, you know, I think why that works as a thought experiment is because it kind of appeals to our sort of base desires, right? We're in this kind of samsaric situation where I am concerned about where my, where the money is going to come from. Like I do depend on that and that's not going to go away unless I join a monastery, which I'm disinclined to do. Um, but even monasteries have to worry about where the money is going to come from. Monasteries have to have monasteries have an economics, you know, and, and a, they have to worry about money too. So it's not like being a monk necessarily monk or a nun necessarily evades this, but it appeals to, it appeals to that, that I can, I could become, I could become wealthy. I could solve my money problems by being generous. And that appeals to something that's an immediate need, but that's sort of a way of like, getting your foot in the door so that you start being generous so that you create the good, the good karma, the virtuous karma, that's going to lead to positive rebirths and, and hopefully accelerate your, your path towards enlightenment towards, you know, uh, favorable rebirths and heading towards Nirvana, the, the, the space in your life, the time and space in your life to practice Dharma consistently enough to see real results. And so it's sort of, th this is called skillful means in Buddhism, which is where you teach something provisionally that's not 100% true, but it helps people along the way. So karmic management might be a cool tool for you. Um, what do I want to see in my future life? Like, you, you know, this is cool. We kind of get to fantasize. Well, I want this and this and this, and you can kind of make a list and then you can reverse engineer it and say, well, okay, if I, these are the things that I want then this is the type of karma that I need to be creating. And then that gives you a motivation for doing virtuous things there. It's a little tainted because your motivation is selfishness, but it's still getting the ball rolling in the right direction. And it starts to establish those habits and things like this, which, which is this upward spiral. But I think it's a little, you know, it can be dangerous if we take it, if we take karmic management too literally and we start thinking like I'm giving, you know, a dollar to every person that I see on the side of the road holding a cardboard sign because someday I'm going to get to build a rocket ship and fly to outer space. Um, that's would that would be not a good motivation. Um, so this is, you know, this is the the kind of the picture of karmic correlation that helps us start to work with 
work with how we can understand karma in our own life. Um, another thought experiment is to think about the life that you have now and list all of the good and bad things that are happening um, and then reverse engineer and say, okay, somebody else in a past life planted that karma so I could have this now. And some, you know, some of the things that are on the short list is like uh, uh, I, for one, live in a comfortable and beautiful and, and relatively safe home. There's some risk of fire danger where I live. And so there's a little bit of fear, but for the most part, my home is safe and comfortable and happy. I don't have problems acquiring food and I can acquire good quality food. <clears throat> most of the people in my life are kind to me and are, are working, you know, working in my favor. Um, you know, they, they care about me and they help me. Um, my, my body is relatively healthy and strong. Um, you know, these are all things that in an inco if you have that incoherent worldview, I can say, well, my body is healthy and strong because I eat right and work out. Well, karma would say, well, okay, that's part of it, but actually a bigger part of it is that, you know, the, that the seeds for the seeds of protecting life, the seeds of sex, of sexual, uh, ethics, the, the seeds of not taking things that aren't given to you those that were planted in the past, that's, that's the real reason that I have a roof over my head and, and all of the things that I need and the food that I need, you know, <clears throat> it was somebody else's generosity that planted the karma that leads to the wonderful life that I have now. And similarly, you know, not everything is going well. You know, he specifically, Tsongkhapa specifically says like, watch out for, you know, diseases and, and epidemics and plagues and it's like, okay, well, you know, it's not, it's not going to be all good karma. There's some good karma that ripens and some negative karma that ripens. But what I can choose to do is be grateful for those, those things that I have now, recognize that those were put into causes that were not under my control probably, but I can choose to respond to them, respond to the good things by reinvesting that good karma, by being generous, by studying Dharma and practicing spirituality by taking care of other people in my life, um, by being patient and kind. And I can respond to the negative things in my life by not, you know, reacting by replanting that karma. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, I can apply patience instead of anger to that situation. When, when, you know, something unfortunate happens and I lose my job or um, somebody hurts my feelings you know, I can, I can respond to those things with some wisdom and say, okay, well, this, you know, this hurts and I have this tendency to react, but I want to plant good karma here. So I'm going to react in a positive way, in a constructive way. It, it's not probably going to fix the situation in the short term, right? But it is, it may fix the situation in the short term. It may not. But what it does do is plants the karma that is cultivating a positive future. Maybe your own future, maybe the, the a future rebirth of, the, as this mind stream continues on through, you know, infinite time, perhaps. And so that gives us some tools to work with for kind of understanding how karma is working and what we can and how we can how we can use it to make choices about how we want to live. for tuning in to the Mojo Hito podcast. For show notes, video, and more information, visit mojohito.com.